Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. This week on the Most Notorious Podcast, the 1959 Kansas Clutter Murders, made famous by Truman Capote and his classic and groundbreaking nonfiction novel, In Cold Blood. We don't know who that third person was, but in Hickok's letters, he mentions that they were going to meet up after the murders with someone named Roberts. Hickok writes that as they were murdering the Clutters, They had an hour to meet this Roberts. They didn't want to miss that because $5,000 is a lot of money. And that's what the point of the meeting was, was to collect $5,000, the other half of a prepayment of $5,000 for the job. That's what led me to believe this wasn't a simple robbery, but actually a murder for hire. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I can't believe I haven't done an episode about today's subject before. I guess, as usual, it's all about waiting for the right guest at the right time. And I have him. But before we get to this, I want to say a few words about Patreon. I've been having a lot of fun at patreon.com slash mostnotorious over the last few weeks. Every Monday, I have been offering a new episode of Aghast at the Past. You might remember the trial episode I released in January right here on Most Notorious. The premise is simple. It is a This Day in True Crime History show, and I have a great time making and releasing it. Become a patron to gain access to this and to be part of our exclusive Most Notorious community. And it helps to keep the show going. Also, today I've got some Patreon NewsHound tier shoutouts that I am excited to attend to. Julia, Kim, Maggie, Bobby, Michael, Diane, Stacy, and Claire. You guys rock. Thank you so much for helping keep the most notorious podcast in operation. You are supremely appreciated by me. Let's get to the show. So great to have as my guest today, Gary McAvoy. 
He is the owner of Vintage Memorabilia, where he deals in first edition books, vintage letters, and manuscripts. He is also a lifelong writer, authoring a number of books. The one he's here to talk about today is called And Every Word is True. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. So tell us the, the fascinating story about how you came to be involved in all of this, this journey that led you to writing this book. Well, as you say, I, I, um, I have been a collector dealer of historical manuscripts, books, letters uh, for some 30, 35 years now. Uh, most of my collection is presidential material, heads of state, uh, some historical photographs, uh, first edition books, as you mentioned. Um, I've had no particular focus on or interest in uh, crime, true crime or otherwise, um, a memorabilia genre known as murderabilia. It's just never interested me in particular. But in March of 2012, a fellow named Ron Nye approached me, and uh, he told me about his dad. And I, I read Truman Capote's In Cold Blood many, many years before. And uh, he told me who his dad was, and uh, I'd never heard of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, but I figured somebody had to lead the investigation of the Clutter murders. And... Uh, that he had materials, his dad's materials from that case, and that he'd like to uh, sell them. Now, Ron had uh, medical issues he had to deal with with his uh, wife at the time, ex-wife he was taking care of. And so he wouldn't have sold, wanted to sell these materials were it not for medical, needing to meet medical expenses. So... Um, he uh, sent me, packaged up and sent me the uh, contents of his dad's archive. And uh, when it arrived here, I opened it up and was surprised to find the official Kansas Bureau of Investigation reports, uh, coroner's reports, crime scene photographs, fingerprint cards for uh, Perry Smith and Richard Hickok, the two killers. Uh, and what I've thought were the, um, uh, the the principal pieces in the collection, two spiral-bound reporter's notebooks containing Harold Nye's personal observations during the investigation, which he led, by the way, not Alvin Dewey. Harold Nye was the lead investigator in the field for the Clutter case. Uh, anyway, this was all some 200 documents that have been sitting in Nye's attic for, oh, I don't know, 40 years or so. Uh, Ron's mother, in fact, when she was moving homes after Harold, her husband, had died, um, Ron was moving her into a smaller home. So she had decided to uh, get rid of Harold's files, which had been in the attic boxes of them, uh, and had them shredded right before the move, except for one box, which, which Ron found when he was visiting his mom the next day. Ron found this box, this banker's box, sitting in the trash bin, and he peeked inside it and found first edition signed copy of In Cold Blood and one of Scopoti's selected memoirs. 
selected letters, rather, two books that were signed by Capote, along with a brown uh, folder containing all his dad's investigative material. And so he just pulled it out of the trash, thinking it shouldn't be there, and put it in his van. And uh, uh, one thing led to another. He called me, and uh, after some discussion, he and I determined that an auction of all this material would be the best way to uh, sell it. And Ron preferred that it be one buyer because uh, he felt that holding the historical significance together of all pieces would be would be the best way to uh, keep them together. In the process of preparing for the auction, I uh, uh, took photographs, scans of every every item, uh, worked up a presentation as we typically do in the auction world. Uh, and then as I began the marketing of it, I issued a press release and did other wide marketing. And this reached uh, newspapers and websites around the world. We got a tremendous amount of interest. About, well, let's see, I'd say three weeks after the press release went out, Ron got a personal call from the director of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation asking to meet about the items. Uh, when they did meet, this was in uh, Topeka, Kansas, where Ron, offered, Ron lived in Oklahoma at the time and offered to drive up and meet the uh, director at his office. Uh, the director demanded that he turn everything over to the KBI as being their property, state property. Uh, Ron took a different position, saying that these were his dad's personal materials, and he declined their, the, the director's demand. Well, a few weeks later, uh, here I am in Seattle, just doing my job on the auction, and I'm summoned by the Washington State Attorney General to appear in their offices here in Seattle at the request of the Kansas Attorney General and a meeting to review all the, the Nye's uh, archive. When my attorney and I got there, there were 13 people in the room, 13 that uh, and another seven were on the on the telephone in Topeka, Kansas, at the other end. And over the next four hours, we uh, the assistant attorney general for Seattle described every piece of paper in specific detail, detail, uh, and it and it just it was a I thought a tremendous waste of time, but it was all done at the request of the Kansas AG because they. They, for whatever reasons, they uh, thought that I might have things that they I didn't tell them about. I had sent them a full copy on CD of everything that was in the archive, and it was only a couple of week a couple of weeks after that that the attorney general surprisingly instigated a lawsuit prohibiting sale or disclosure of the documents in any form, and uh, we decided to take the case on, defending ourselves on first amendment. First Amendment issues, um, because we believe the materials contained items of public interest. After four years in court, the judge ruled in our favor, even fining the Kansas Attorney General some $4,000 for false allegations that cost us a great deal to defend against. So in the end, we were able to do what we wanted with Harold Nye's archive. But at that point, we were pretty thrashed after that, Eric. It was 
a, a four-year slog through court. And uh, at the end, we just decided it would be best to donate uh, heraldized materials to the New York Public Library, which is the repository for Truman Capote's estate files and uh, uh, his notes about the clutter case. And we figured that that uh, writing a book about this whole bizarre experience was the natural next step for us, revealing not only what was in the investigation files, but that differed from what Capote had written, but how aggressively the state of Kansas fought to pre- prevent its publication and the suppression of that materials. Interesting. And part of the collection included some pretty graphic photographs, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Those are... I had uh, worked real hard to keep those from reaching the public. I discovered a uh, cult-like fascination with uh, that kind of photograph. And there were a lot of people specifically looking for murder photos of the the, uh, clutter crimes. I did not want to be responsible for that. Uh, when I dem- when I presented them on the website, they were all the size of postage stamps, only to show the potential bidders that the, the photos did exist, but it wasn't enough for you to see the uh, uh, the gruesome nature of each one of them. And in fact, we returned the photos to the uh, Kansas Attorney General. Uh, well, actually, to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, we returned all of the originals to them. Didn't want to, did not want to have anything to do with them. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, so I'm guessing most of my listeners are familiar with this case, uh, have read In Cold Blood, um, or seen the film Capote. But if you wouldn't mind, refresh our memories on the Clutter case. Uh, could you give us a summary? Who were the Clutters? What happened in the early morning hours of November 15th, 1959? I'd be happy to. Her- Herb Clutter himself was uh, quite a prominent uh, political activist in, in the agricultural community, not just in Kansas, but nationally. Uh, President uh, Dwight Eisenhower personally asked him to serve as the first director of the Farm Credit Board. And Clutter was prominent in many uh, federal posts as well as that. Uh, it made him a very important man, and he was extremely engaged in the community, his local community as well, uh, on the board of the local church, uh, uh, the Lutheran church, I believe, and or Methodist, completely engaged with this community and in federal circles. Um, he had built a, a fine home that the, his family had moved into in 1949 in, in a village outside Garden City, Kansas, called Holcomb. Uh, he had a wife uh, and four children, two of whom still lived at home. Nancy, she was 16, and Kenyon, uh, his son, was 15. Now, Mrs. Clutter was known to have had some mental health issues, probably what today we'd call severe depression. Um, so she had a housekeeper in several days a week to care for the house and family. And Nancy, her daughter, took care of meals and uh, did other things that her mother wasn't able to do, being pretty much a shut-in. There's been a lot of controversy about this topic. The, the rest of the Clutter family, the surviving Clutter family, claims that 
their mother had no health issues at all, but there are way too many reports from the community that that that, that was in fact the case. Um, just after midnight on November 14th, 1959, which would now put us into the November 15th, two men, Richard Hickok and Perry Smith, had entered the house through an open door off the kitchen, intending to rob Clutter's uh, safe, which purportedly contained $10,000 in cash. Uh, they woke up the family, tied them up uh, in the upstairs bathroom, but after searching the house thoroughly, they found no safe. In fact, they only found about $40 in cash in all and a couple silver dollars in Nancy's room, some money in Mrs. Clutter's uh, purse, a couple, a few dollars in Mr. Clutter's wallet. But still, for whatever reasons, they slaughtered the entire family before they left with four shotgun blasts to the head of each person and a senseless massacre. So um, that's what I know about the Clutter family. And interestingly, they didn't take her diamond ring either. That's right. They left the diamond ring on her hand. Uh, there were a few other things in the house. They did They did take a, a pair of binoculars, a, a radio that belonged to Kenyon, um, but not much that had any particular value. So besides reading your book, I didn't uh, uh, reread In Cold Blood for this, but I did watch the movie Capote uh, just last night. As you mentioned in your book, Al Dewey is the law enforcement protagonist character uh, in both stories. But Harold Nye is definitely the hero in your telling of the story, and rightly so. Would you give us a bit of Harold Nye's background and, and tell us how he he got into law enforcement to begin with? Of course, yeah. Harold Harold was a consummate law enforcement professional. He began his career uh, in his late 20s, uh, effectively as a patrolman for the Garden City Police Department, uh, and then some, sometime later moved over to the larger Hutchinson Kansas Police Department, uh, and it was there he caught the attention of the um, director of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, who offered him a role as a special agent. And I was brought in with three or four other special agents at the same time. Uh, and he stayed there for some 20 years until his retirement. And I always told his son and others who would listen to him that uh, he had far more interesting cases uh, other than the clutter murders, and he never really understood the fascination with that case, apart from, obviously, Capote's famous treatment of it in his book. Uh, and then there was Richard Burke's uh, original movie of the same name in Cold Blood. Did you see Infamous, by the way, with Toby Jones playing Capote? I did not see that movie, no. Terrific film. He, he actually, I think he played Capote in a, a much more reminiscent of the man himself than uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman did. It's a very different performance. I recommend it. I, I had wanted to see it, yeah. Uh, but it, it kind of got lost, I think. Uh, both, both films came out around the same time, right? 
You're right. Yeah. And of course, there was all the uh, Oscar chatter for Hoffman's work, which he deserved. And uh, uh, poor Toby Jones got lost in the in the uh, road dust. Yeah, that's too bad. I, I had heard good things. So I would like to ask you about Perry Smith and Richard Hickok. What were they like? And, and was there anything in their past that might have revealed a, a, a penchant for, for this type of violence? Well, in Perry's case, he, he came from a sadly broken home. Uh, his mother was um, not Cherokee, as Truman Capote had indicated, but she was uh, a mix of northern Paiute and Shoshone. And uh, his father was Caucasian, but both uh, Flo and Tex, as they were known, were performers on the rodeo circuit. They often had, at home, alcohol-fueled fights, which left the three children to fend for themselves. His uh, brother and her wife, brother and his wife, uh, committed suicide, and uh, one other uh, sister of Perry's, one he cared a great deal for, uh, died as well. And so he was uh, stricken with grief as a child. Uh, from all appearances, he was a quiet child, too, preferring to write about his feelings or draw um, pictures, but, but having also later very strong opinions about people and life situations. He was largely self-educated and on the sense, real sensitive side, far from what you might expect of a mass murderer. Richard Hickok, on the other hand, grew up under um, slightly more privileged circumstances with a loving family, a mother and father who just adored him. Uh, he was a very popular athlete in high school, achieved high grades, a real smart guy who unfortunately had psychopathic impulses. Uh, he was clearly the alpha of the two between he and Perry Smith, and he led Perry down a, a dark path that would end in ruin for both of them. As far as a pension for violence, you asked, Hickok did have a nasty car accident that may have caused him some form of head injury. It was never diagnosed at the time, but looking back, it was very probably suffered from traumatic brain injury since his own family reported that he'd changed for the worse after the accident, becoming generally meaner and more self-centered and less caring about other people. Uh, by the way, shortly after receiving Harold Nye's materials, another client came to me, I should mention this, in a completely serendipitous way, offering me another lot to auction, this one containing Perry Smith's personal journals, uh, which included family photographs, letters to and from, uh, various people, you know, among them Garden City Undersheriff Wendell Meyer and his wife Josephine, who were the jailers of Smith and Hickok when they were captured in Garden City and during the murder trial. Um, as if that material wasn't fascinating enough on its own, uh, I couldn't believe my luck when I came into possession of Richard Hickok's personal letters some 200 of them to, that he had written to a writer named Starling Mac Nations. Nations and Hickok had agreed to write a book on Hickok's side of the story since by this time Truman Capote had been interviewing both of them for his book, In Cold Blood, 
but spending far more time with Perry Smith, someone uh, we believe he identified with more closely, since they both grew up in under similar circumstances with darker family backgrounds. Yeah. So if if we do get a chance, I'd, I'd like to talk more about that in a bit. Um, but one of the, the big questions surrounding this case is motive. Why the clutters? Why Smith and Hickok? Um, why target someone so far away? And a lot of that revolved around a character named Floyd Wells, who played an important part in this narrative. What was his role in, in all of this? And do you believe it was diminished in Capote's book? Did Floyd Wells really have the inside scoop on Clutter's financial situation? Floyd Wells is the single most mysterious character in this entire story. And certainly most, the most interesting one from my perspective. Uh, he worked for Herb Clutter in late 1948 uh, for about seven months as a farmhand. Uh, he's, in fact, the one who told Richard Hickok while, while they were both at Kansas State Penitentiary each for misdemeanors and um, larceny, things like that. Um, he, uh, Wells told Hickok about Clutter having $10,000 in his safe at home, uh, which was the whole instigation of the robbery and the murders, uh, which all started with Floyd Wells, who really mostly got lost in the shuffle during the trial. Uh, there wasn't much... Uh, Thrust given to Wells when, in fact, he was he was really the one who started it all. Probably should have been been arrested as an accessory. Capote only dedicated two paragraphs to Wells in *In Cold Blood*, uh, but Wells seems to have played a much larger role. Uh, something I was to learn by reading both Hickok's letters to Macnations and Harold Nye's investigation reports. Um. First of all, Wells was just one of oh, 20 or so employees Herb Clutter had, and he wasn't there for that long, just the seven months. During court testimony, he claims he had a close relationship with the family, but that doesn't track with what other farm employees have reported, most of whom don't recall him at all. Uh, or if they did, he was just there doing minor things on the farm. I think it would be stretching the bounds of credibility for Clutter to be telling an itinerant farm worker like Wells that he kept as much as $10,000 in cash on hand to pay people, as Wells has reported. Uh, and Clutter really never dealt in cash, uh, just bank checks. He would even write checks for a dollar, for that matter. Uh, Wells, Wells' story, the whole story, never made any sense, not to me. I think he made up most of it for reasons I lay out in the book, but probably we shouldn't reveal here. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
Pat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So let's talk about Nye's files and some of the surprises in those files. Um, surprises that made you question the generally accepted Capote narrative. Well, first of all, getting back to Floyd Wells for a moment, Hickok claims he got a diagram of the clutter house from Wells showing where each room was and who slept where and, the, and a map on how to get there. A, dry, a diagram, by the way, which was never recovered as evidence. It was never found. It just disappeared. Uh, but Wells, for the short time he was there, he was never inside the new house. It hadn't been built by that time. By the time the clutters, he left the clutters employ in the late 1948. Whether Capote knew this or not is unknown. I I'm not sure whether he did or not. I can't find any notes in his materials that talks much about Wells at all. Uh, but it is a crucial point of evidence that just everyone seems to have missed. 
Now, next, as, as to the um, among the investigation reports, I discovered that a night marshal in the nearby town of Cimarron had reported three suspicious young men, two of them fitting the description of Smith and Hickok to a T, in a diner called the Western Cafe. Now, this was at three in the morning, just an hour after the murders in Garden City, which was some 25 miles away. And no one had discovered the bodies yet, so so this town marshal, Snipe Marshal, uh, in the cafe, seeing these guys, had no idea that there was a murder had take, just taken place. We don't know who that third person was, but in Hickok's letters, he mentions that they were going to meet up after the murders with someone named Roberts. Hickok writes that as they were murdering the clutters, they had an hour to meet this Roberts. They didn't want to miss that because $5,000 is a lot of money. And that's what the point of the meeting was, was to collect $5,000, uh, the other half of a prepayment of 5000 for the job. That's what led me to believe this wasn't a simple robbery, but actually a murder for hire. Now, this Roberts character was impossible to find. I... I I spent months trying to find America. I looked high and low every every possible document I could get my hands on. Uh, now the KBI did a, a pretty good search of all nearby motels in their investigation, and they did find two men named Roberts on two separate motel guest registers, both of whom checked out the day before the murders. That may be coincidence, but I find it rather interesting. Um, otherwise, I couldn't get a lead on this guy if he ever did exist. Yeah, that that's part of what makes this whole case so intriguing. As you write in your book that the KBI's current narrative regarding the clutter case investigation, which they consider a major victory, um, and it's touted by them as, as a big example of how competent they are as an organization. That's right. But the narrative is based completely on the Capote book, and, and they've forgotten a lot of the details about their initial investigation. So to this day, the KBI still refers to Anne Coldblood as the official story. Which contradicts a lot of what Harold Nye said, um, yep. and he was the man who did a lot of the grunt work on this case. I can see why the state didn't want this material to come out in public, because it would it would denigrate their the the ladder on which they all strive to uh, achieve based on in cold blood. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. Um, so you mention a third possible person, um, a large payment. That that supposed payment it was never discovered in the possession of these guys, right? That's right. Another curiosity. If uh, if Hickok got that money, uh, there's no record uh, showing where he might have spent it. Um, his father even asked him, and this is part of the uh, uh, the letters that uh, Hickok had written. Well, there's one page remaining, one original page from that's in the uh, Kansas Historical Society's records, and in that is a is his father Hickok's father coming up to him in his cell, saying, three men outside just asked me if you got paid for doing this, and to which Hickok denied. 
But uh, for three different men, and presumably those are law enforcement officials because they're in the jail, I don't think they'd allow reporters in there, uh, to ask him if he got paid for it. But there was reason that they asked the question. So that's probably the question that all of my listeners are asking themselves right now. <laughs> yeah. Who would pay that kind of money to bump off Herb Clutter? Without going into details that I outline in the book, it's just far too much to, to do in, in, uh, in this venue. Um, I, I do allude to some reasons why. Uh, one might be a uh, have interests in high government. Um, I find that an appealing approach. Um, but um, at this point, it's so hard to say. I, I'm even reluctant to, to um, generalize on it, given what I've been through with the state's legal system. And another possibility is that it might have had something to do with an affair that Herb Clutter was having with the wife of his business partner, um, although that's pure speculation. Well, it's not so much speculation as, as uh, witness reports. There were witnesses that did identify uh, Herb and the wife of his business partner at the time. That, uh, and they were found dancing without each of their spouses at a, uh, a co-op dance, one of the farmers' co-ops in Wichita. And uh, that uh, there were a couple other incidents where uh, Herb Clutter was believed to have been um, with this woman. And now keep in mind, his wife was uh, incapacitated. She, she, he was a vibrant, young, fit man in his mid-40s that uh, uh, had, had the world in his palm. And um, he could have had anything, really. One of the great injustices in, in Cold Blood is the attention that Capote places on L. Dewey and, and not Harold Nye, as we've already established. Right. Uh, but what was L. Dewey's role in all of this? Uh, could, could you tell us? Sure. Dewey was a, a seasoned FBI agent by the time he joined the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. So he was a, he'd been a lawman all his life as well. Um, but he was actually the case coordinator for the clutter investigation. He wasn't the, the lead investigator, as many people attribute it, especially Truman Capote. Um, he tended the office. He took in the field reports from the investigators. He managed the calls that came in. Uh, but the field investigation team itself was led by Harold Nye and, and three other investigators under him. Um, for his efforts, Harold Nye was nine months later promoted to the assistant director of the KBI. So that was, you know, pretty telling. Uh, but he, but uh, Dewey coordinated other local agencies as well as the attending uh, uh, all the investigation reports. Uh, Capote did have a very close relationship with Dewey and his wife, Marie. And uh, as he needed a hero for his book, a protagonist of sorts, Dewey turned out to fit the bill with his, as Harper Lee often spoke, his movie star looks. 
Uh, now, Harold and I did the real legwork on the case, as many others at the time had noted, including, as I said, the uh, head of the KBI at the time. Interesting. So, again, even just watching the Capote movie uh, last night, one thing that really struck me as being really odd um, is how easily Capote was able to get such prison access to Smith and Hickok. It seemed a, a little far-fetched in the movie. It's actually quite accurate. <laughs> it was it was ten thousand dollars. <laughs> That's all it took. Yeah. Uh, Capote had actually made arrangements to pay that money through his law firm to gain access to Smith and Hickok. All per, all the the um, warden had prohibited all press and media from being able to obtain interviews with Hickok and Smith, that's, which is the number one ticket in town as far as the press was concerned. Uh, and Capote was, was furious that he couldn't get, get in because he had, of course, a, a book under contract he had to write. So he made arrangements through his uh, well-heeled uh, colleagues. His, uh, his law firm uh, and comprised a, a former... Uh, high-level politician and a senator, I believe it was, and uh, others who who could move mountains, and that ultimately got to the to the uh, warden of the Kansas State Penitentiary, who allowed Capote in as often as you wanted. Actually, it was quite it was actually as as shown in that movie. Wow. So you mentioned Starling Machinations and his own pursuit of information. And he seemed to, to become as close almost to Hickok as Capote was to Smith. And he actually finished a full manuscript. Would you share why we're not able to read that now? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Machinations and Hickok had decided to write a book on Hickok's side of things. Because nations couldn't get access to Hickok in prison, they had to correspond by mail. So Hickok wrote, oh, it must have been reams of reams of paper. He, Hickok's own words were he, he'd written over 100,000 words. Unfortunately, only some 200 pages have survived that time that, that have been found. Uh, but they contain some pretty remarkable assertions, uh, some of which I'd covered earlier, more of which are in the book. Now, Nations apparently did have a full book finished and ready for publication. It was called High Road to Hell. Uh, but publishers had turned him down. He actually went to Random House, who published uh, In Cold Blood, or was publishing at that time. And they did not want another story on to compete with uh, Capote's. So they turned him down, and once Random House turned him down, uh, he couldn't find another publisher interested at all. But the, uh, the curious thing is, Nations was driving home on Christmas Eve of 1968 and uh, had a one-car accident on a, on a two-car lane and uh, was killed instantly. The next day... His bound manuscript, which others had seen sitting on his desk at the office, simply vanished. And it has since never been found. And his son, Michael, is still looking for it to this day. Huh. Yeah. Love to get my hands on that. Yeah. Uh, some of the revelations you, you make about Hickok 
Um, you lay out your evidence that, that he was a sociopath, um, but he was also violent, um, really violent. And, and you write in your book about how heartbroken he was when Percy Smith killed Herb Clutter before he got a chance to. Yeah. And Hickok almost burst into tears. Yeah, poor, poor Hickok was, uh, was uh, uh, very upset that uh, Perry had had killed everyone and didn't leave him the opportunity to, to kill someone himself. Uh, this, this is going to be a little macabre, so some listeners may want to tune out at this point, but um, Perry did hand... Um, Dick Hickok the knife after he had slit Hick Hick Mr. Hick Mr. Clutter's throat and urged him to stick it in the throat to make sure well certainly Clutter was dead at this point but uh, so so Hickok had jammed the knife repeatedly into the throat with some viciousness I'm, I'm, I'm led to understand uh, that uh, made no had no purpose, served no sense other than to uh, appease Hickok's need to do something. It's really, really dark stuff. <sighs> yeah. So there is no question in your mind that, that Smith and Hickok killed the clutters. Um, but, but the larger question is, were there others behind it and who they might have been? Smith and Hickok were certainly the killers, definitely. Uh, in fact, Smith uh, has admitted to pulling the trigger on all four, as I mentioned, despite his earlier claim that Hickok has shot two of the women. As to who might be behind it, I still can't. Uh, I can't. I can't really surmise. It could be. It could be. Uh, someone who didn't want uh, Clutter to be talking about the relationship he was having. It could be people in, related to the government and some policy issues that Clutter was responsible for that were not in favor with the uh, uh, Ezra Taft Benson, who was the Secretary of Agriculture at the time. Um, much more that to go into that we can go into here, but. Uh, the book goes into, I think, deep details on both. One of the things I, I really enjoyed your book um, is that you go back and forth. Um, you talk about your legal battle with the KBI, and then you talk about the Clutter case. Uh, the book is not just about the Clutter murders, but your extraordinary efforts to keep control of these files. But one of the really sad things about this is that it took a really terrible toll on Harold Nye's wife, Joyce, right? Yeah, Joyce was, uh, it lived in fear of the KBI. She uh, was convinced that for that they would, I, I, this may have been based on other situations she had seen when she talked to the other wives. I'm not really sure. I don't recall Ron going into great detail about it, except that she never trusted the KBI, anyone there. Uh, and she was always uh, uh, afraid that they were going to come break down the door for all the files that Harold legally <laughs> was entitled to keep in his home, files, the cases that he had worked on. And by 
statutes at the time. And anyone who worked on a case could keep file copies if they were called for future uh, testimony and trial. So yeah, Joyce was, uh, uh, Joyce was a mess about the KBI. Sadly, she, she died before learning uh, that we were, uh, that we prevailed in court. And one of, one of the things that, that really rubs raw, raw in the wrong way now. I'm sad for that. I did want to ask you about some of the, the difficulties you had getting research materials and especially getting a hold of a copy of the trial transcript. <laughs> uh, can you tell that story? That elusive transcript was one of the hardest things to come by. I, it remains a mystery today, Eric. You'd think that as a public record and a prominent one at that, that it would be available to the public on the court in the court records, but no. Uh, we tried and tried by uh, phone calls, by email, by personal letter. Apparently, the court stenographer was a memorabilia collector herself, had taken it, and ended up selling copies at $600 each. And by this time, by the time we did find that where it was and who had it and what the terms were, it was so far in the writing process that I didn't need it at that point. I had found an appellate court uh, transcript that had everything from the earlier trial that I needed for the for my research. So uh, that was, uh, but it, you know, you run into these roadblocks all the time while trying to do your research in this, and pretty soon a, a suspicious pattern forms, and that was part of it. You, you write in your book that the legal expenses were pretty astronomical. Ours are in six figures. But but so gratifying to come out on top at the end, right? Yeah. Fortunately, our, our attorneys worked on uh, uh, contingency. Uh, and we didn't get anything out of out of the uh, trial. We did, we did get 160000 in attorney's fees from the state that paid for some of the attorney's uh, costs. But... That was just a, a wild ride and not a good one. Not something either Ron or I would want to do again. Right. Um, I'd like it if you could tell us more about your website and, and this exclusive bonus called The Evidence Room for, for listeners who buy your book. Yeah, I put together a few choice items from the investigation files, uh, from Perry Smith's journals, from uh, Richard Hickok's letters, and posted them on a private page on the website for exclusive access as a bonus to readers of our book. Um, and the, the, the evidence room has been quite popular, in fact, giving fans of In Cold Blood and our own book a glimpse inside a world-famous murder case, something they might not normally find on the Internet. You have a, a personal website as well, correct? Uh, they're combined now. I have all my books. I'm uh, on on GaryMcAvoy.com. Uh, you can also go to AndEveryWordIsTrue.com. It redirects there. But uh, uh, I've just finished publishing a book called The Magdalene Deception. This is my first hand at fiction, and it's a thriller set in the Vatican, um, which enjoys a few themes like the Da Vinci Code does. Uh, but all of my books are now on my own website, so you'll find the evidence room uh, at the, on the top menu there as well.
So what is your favorite item, either from your own personal collection or a piece of memorabilia uh, that has passed through your hands? Right behind me in my office here, it hangs on the wall. The first page of In Cold Blood, typed by Truman Capote and signed at the bottom by him. And I have it framed in uh, in a beautiful motif with a great picture of him. And, uh, and next to that is Walt Whitman, who had written Leaves of Grass. It, it's framed with the first edition of Leaves of Grass. And there's a little note to him or from him to a couple of ladies who had ordered his book just as it came out in publication. Uh, I've got living, looking at my home is like being in a museum. I've got things everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so there have been three films based off of the, the In Cold Blood book. What did you think about the one from the 60s? Um, Robert Blake was in that one, right? Oh, no. Nothing beats the classic. No, that in that that was the finest of them all. They filmed that in the courthouse where the trial took place, using some of the actual jurors from the original trial. They uh, filmed it in various places, used you know, the post office and all. They used the actual uh, furniture in the trial. That the that the um, Richard Brooks did a. A truly hist- had a truly historic touch on that film, and uh, kept as close to the documentation as possible. Unfortunately, much, much some of that documentation included Truman Capote's book, which didn't have much of much of the reality discovered yet. In fact, I'm not even sure Capote knew a great deal of what I've discovered. Because the investigation, many of the investigation reports weren't available to him, although he did get many from uh, Alvin Dewey, we know that. Huh. So have you been to the Clutter Home? I have not, no, and I don't have any interest in doing so, really. Does the house still stand? The house does still stand. It's, uh, it was sold just recently, as I recall. Uh, somebody had mentioned it to me. I, I keep getting fans sending me little clips here and there of uh, uh, what's happening in Garden City and to the Clutter House. And a lot of people who've actually been to the Clutter House uh, tell me their feelings about being there. I find it so interesting that, that you, you fell into the true crime genre. Uh, not your interest by a long shot. Yeah. <laughs> And now suddenly you are one of our national experts on this case. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I have. I, I've, I've become the de facto expert on on the Clutter case without setting out to be. And uh, only because I've just I spent seven years researching it. Uh, all of my work, my writing, I, I, I don't cut corners. I, I only find what what is uh, what can be verified and I put out what's true uh, and I rarely make assessments on my own unless I can support them. I don't like being caught in lies. I learned that when I was a kid in Catholic school so I've never I can't lie it doesn't work for me I forget what I said so working with the truth has always been a better course. 
I wholeheartedly agree. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Gary McAvoy. His book is called, And Every Word is True. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe day.